add a Ford Explorer crossed into my lane fully because I'm not going to ruminate on it. Do you see this as, as like a game we're playing in life? This thing called mindfulness will undo you. So yeah, it's a little crazy, but I, but I like crazy. Yeah. So I would love to just start by asking you, Michael, if you could give us the brief lowdown on your story uh, and how you came to pause, breathe, reflect. Oh, cool. Well, first of all, Avi, great to be with you. This is, this is something I've been looking forward to. I'm glad I'm back from my travels and we get to sit down and chat and love the work that you're doing and just what you're putting out there in the world. It's, it's needed. We need more, we need more obvious of the world or in the world. So my story. So I think it's pretty typical in a lot of ways. So I grew up just in suburbia in upstate New York, pretty much a, um, a white bread kind of town. I think I had 400 kids in my high school. Uh, 99% of them were white kids, guys and gals. So I didn't know much about diversity. And that's just the world I grew up in. And I also grew up in the in the world where there's a script, you know, like what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a man. And not really learning how to deal with my emotions back before there was anything such as emotional intelligence. You know, you just try to suck it up. Girls cry, all that stuff. And I just didn't know how to deal with it. So as a coping strategy, I just packed a lot of my emotions deep within. Along with probably all the listeners, you know, I have that little voice in my head, as we all do, that would tell me things like I wasn't worthy or not enough and all that jazz. And every time that popped up, I just would pack it down and pack it down and pack it down. And eventually it would bubble up and I would explode. I had the classic Irish temper, whatever that is, right? That stereotype. And most of my existence, as far as life, was centered around sports. I thought that was sort of the portal into my dad's heart and my dad's acceptance. And didn't really, you know, school, I, I went through, but I wasn't in love with it. I wasn't, you know, a lot of times, like in social media, we have to hyperbolize our story. Like, oh, I was like, I had to walk uphill 10 miles and I was an F student and look at me now. And it wasn't like that. I was, you know. I was a good student, but I wasn't a great student. I wasn't a poor student, but I was in love with school. I was in love with sports. I just loved moving my body in the competition. And again, I thought it was a portal into approval as a boy. And I thought the script was you try to work hard, you go to college, you get a gig, uh, you meet someone. You marry the someone, you start to raise a family, you work your way up the corporate ladder. And along the way, you like collect things stuff, titles and cars and things that people put on their vision board nowadays. And that's what I thought you did. And they paid you. So the stress was sort of like part of the gig, right? So it's stressful, but they pay you. It offsets the stress. I knew of no other way. And then I had my accident, which I call my last bad day, which I'll explain. And I was out in New Mexico. It was in July, company offsite. Had a pretty big job. I was in charge of our company's product. It was about 
Well, at the peak, it was $2 billion. But at that moment in time, it was about $500 million I was in charge of. So a lot of money that I thought. I was 33, two young children, two daughters, three and a half years old. Al was seven months old. Grady was married seven years. And I brought my bike out to get back into cycling. Love of my life from that first day where I learned how to ride my bike without training wheels. And I was going to get back in shape and back into racing. And that morning I was doing laps around the hotel property, a two mile loop and a Ford Explorer crossed into my lane fully. He was going about 40 miles an hour and hit me head on. And I remember almost everything about that morning. The sound of me hitting his grill, the sound I made when I went into his windshield, I broke a hole into it. Uh, the screech of his brakes, I can still hear to this day. And the thud I made when I came to the asphalt below, that knocked me unconscious. And when I regained consciousness, I asked the EMTs, hey, how is my bike? It's a question only in order to appreciate. And they looked at me and they're like, your bike's, your bike's fine, which it was not. It was a total lie. It was not fine. It was destroyed. I was destroyed. And I could just tell by the energy of the space, things were pretty grim. Plus, I couldn't move. I was in the worst pain of my life. And I just thought, like, it doesn't end this way, does it? This is not part of the script. I was following the script. The script I was given, I was following that script. Like, what's going on? It was so surreal. It's like, no, no. Like, they got the kids. I got the marriage. I got the house. I got the script. And then I just remember trying to will myself not to fall asleep, lose consciousness again. Because I thought if I did, I would lose control over the situation. Crazy as that sounds. Because I had no control. And when they put me on the helicopter to take me to Albuquerque, the only trauma one center in the state, I promised myself if, or I promised whoever was listening, whoever was in my mug, mother earth, the universe or God, if I survive, I promise I'll stop chasing happiness because I was chasing happiness. Mm. And of course I was like, it was crazy. I didn't know how to stop chasing happiness. I was just making a bargain. Like if you do this for me, I will stop doing this. Not even knowing that that was the thing they wanted me to do. But I was chasing my happiness, collecting my stuff, which is, I think is common, more common today because we have more opportunity to compare ourselves with everyone else. And they flew me to Albuquerque. I remember every one of those 19 minutes, first surgery lasted almost 12 hours, needed 34 units of blood product to save my life. Uh, the accident broke a whole bunch of everything, but it lacerated the femoral artery of my left leg. And I was in essence bleeding out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico, which is somewhere to someone, but nowhere to me. And the doctors told my wife, we're not really sure how your husband survived. Had he been 10 years older or not in shape, he would have died before he got here because he lost so much blood. And I spent four days in the ICU and I came out and the journey continues. So it's like a Disney film. It starts off with a bad scene one, but it does get better over time. So. <laughs> okay. And then now this movement. Yes. That you're devoting so much time to. How did that incident lead you to spending your time, you know, leading meditations, guiding people to slow down in their lives? Yeah. Well, in my hospital stay, which was several months long, at first, the doctors painted a pretty grim picture of what was in front of me. They're like, 
someone with your injuries, you're probably not going to ride again. You're probably going to walk with some limitations. You're going to have like a lot more surgery. Both knees are going to get replaced in five years. The list went on and on. So the whole like, Hey, I'll promise I'll stop chasing happiness. I did that. Cause I couldn't even like spell it. I couldn't see it. I was really dark really quickly. And then fast forward a bit, a mentor shared with me, listen, everything is neutral until you label it. You get to choose your label. So right now you're labeling yourself as a victim and I will submit, you can label yourself in a lot of different ways. You just don't have to choose the label as victim. And if you choose to label yourself that way, no one's going to blame you because something horrific happened to you. And I was like, what, what is this? The whole, everything's neutral until you label it. What is this like woo stuff? Like this is <laughs> like, I was not into any of like the stuff that we currently do back then. Cause I thought it was soft and wooish. And he went on to say, you go where your eyes go, which is a, a page out of the cycling handbook. When we go down a, a descent or a turn, we want to like look through the turn that helps the bike go where we want it to go. If you look straight ahead, the bike's going to go straight ahead and not go through the turn, which is no bueno in terms of cycling. And what I realized in a moment of clarity, a big aha during a therapy session is that I needed to heal my mind in order to heal my body. I think a lot of people know Joe Dispenza. So I didn't know anything about Joe Dispenza. Like, you know, and like my thing, like in a lot of ways I would like, I have Joe Dispenza's story before Joe Dispenza was a story. <laughs> like, cause it was the same thing that happened to me. I've been quieter about it, but I knew like I had to heal my mind and I had to come back to my breath. I knew enough as an athlete to come back to my breath but I didn't know anything about meditation or mindfulness. And after that, aha, the next day I wheeled myself to a quiet place in the hospital and I just got quiet. I slowed down and started to practice mindfulness again, not knowing how to do it. It was 2001. So this is before internet, right? Before, well, not before the internet, but before social media, before Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, all that stuff. But I just knew I had to come back to my breath. And I started these pause, breathe, reflect moments. And PBR is just a, for me, it was a cute acronym because when people hear it, they think of Pap's Blue Ribbon. So I was like, I need a PBR. And they're like, ha ha, that's funny. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's funny. But it's like, it's no, it's pause, breathe, reflect. But there was also a metric at work I was graded on, which I couldn't stand called profit before royalty. Mm. My whole evaluation was based on that in essence. And I was like, why is it just one thing? Why is that one thing so dominant? And so I also thought it was clever to call these moments PBRs because of that whole profit before royalty thing. So I just, there are moments where I paused, came back to my breath and reflected. And that's where I started my gratitude practice. And I started seeing other things like what I still had and could do. And that was the beginning of like really turning around my recovery. So I eventually got out of my wheelchair, back on my feet, out of the hospital, and then over time back on my bike and to this current day. So there were little micro breaks. So I wasn't meditating for two hours or I wasn't even meditating for 10 or 20 minutes. It was just these five minute breaks. And my practice has extended, right? So I have a practice like outside of clubhouse that's, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes a day, 
But I do believe these five minute breaks are a good port of entry or a nice refresher throughout the day. And so I kept it to myself for a bit because I knew no one else that was really doing this. And talking about mindfulness and meditation in a corporate environment back then was like, well, you're like way out there. Like we got to talk about Excel workbooks, right? Not meditation. And so I just kept it to myself. And then eventually I left my corporate job to do what I currently do. I would write about it occasionally. I would tell my clients that maybe they needed to have a PBR break. But once we got to the pandemic, that's when people started playing back. Hey, Michael, man, it's a pause, breathe, reflect kind of day. I need to grab a few PBRs. And at that point in time, I realized there's something more to this. And this moment in time is going to call for our agility and resilience and more mindfulness. And at that point in time, when the pandemic hit, I was like, you know, I have this thing that has been instrumental, so pivotal in my life. Why aren't you sharing it? You're, you're, you're not sharing it because you're worried about being judged of being too soft and not in the corporate space. Cause you're a corporate coach. And I, you know what? I was like, you know what? This moment is too huge. I could feel it. I've gone back and listened to videos I did in March and April of 2020. And I realized I could feel like this moment was going to be enormous. And I was like, you're not, you're not serving folks, you could serve by keeping it to yourself. You need to be more open about this because it changed your life. And maybe it could change someone else's life during this moment in time. That's going to be quite significant. As I'm listening to you, it seems like it's such a natural progression, actually, that you went through between discovering something for yourself that, oh, this is really helping, helping me. And then at a certain point saying, whoa, this could really help other people too. And I think maybe we all go through that. But what's really interesting to me is, is, is maybe the moment when you first started developing the practice. Is at least what I imagine happening there for you, as you said, you know, wheeling yourself to the corner of your hospital room and, 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 and taking some time for yourself. It almost feels like game time in, in, in a way, you know, and, and what, what is the game time there that we're playing at? Um, and I think what it is maybe is, is realizing that it's up to me to take ownership for my life, you know, and this, it, it, it's weird how that is even something that isn't obvious from the start, because I think it is for children. They take ownership of their lives. But then it's almost like you get put into the system where someone else is telling you what to do all the time. Like you said, that that programming starts to go and says, okay, well, you're adults and I want to please you. I love you. You're my parents or teacher or whatever it is. So I'm going to start taking the actions to start pleasing you. And you're telling me that here's this road of success. And if I do all of these different things, to, I'll achieve happiness. And then I start to do it. And then I think in a way it becomes really scary to think outside of that because you start to realize that no one is steering the ship <laughs> of mankind and that we're all responsible and like, Whoa, like that's too big of an idea in a way. It's, it's, it feels much safer to stay small. Um, but through, you know, the, this type of painful experience when the search for happiness is not leading to actual happiness, 
and you experience enough pain, well, I got to do something different because, you know, it's just too hot. You know, the, where I live, the integral yoga lineage was started by Swami Satchidananda. And he, he gives this uh, metaphor of like holding a pot that's, uh, that's really hot, a boiling pot and, and someone's holding it and they're asking, you know, should I drop it? Should I drop the pot? <laughs> because when it's really hot enough, you don't ask if I can drop it. You can just drop it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. But yeah, to your point, Avi, in a lot of ways it was. It was, I have to be responsible for my own life. And up until that point, I don't know if I really was. I told myself I was. Like, you know, accountability and meritocracy, all that jazz. But I was, I was naked. I was stripped down naked, right? There's, there is, there is something not, and this might be a trigger for some listeners, but when I was in the hospital, I I could not do my basic activities of daily living. Like um, to go to the bathroom, I had to call a nurse and to get on a bed, bedpan and I couldn't even, you know, clean myself. I was so in, and there's something about your dignity. It's like, it's all stripped away. It's all like, you're there naked. You just have like a hospital gun on, which is really nothing. And you need help doing everything. And, you know, it, it's, and I, and I, I would, I say this and I also will say, I don't think someone needs to go through what I went through in order to wake up to life. Like I went through what I went through because I had to go through what I went through, but I don't think everyone has to. Um, I did because I think I was blowing past hints that the universe, mother earth, God, whomever was giving me. And they're like, listen, dude, we've been trying to hint you into like waking up to life and you keep on blowing past us. You're too busy. You're on your hamster wheel. You're doing this, that, and other thing. So we're going to give you something you cannot ignore and what I share a lot is like, listen, if the universe sent me a Ford Expedition, which is the bigger version of the Ford SUV, I don't live. I'm pretty convinced of that. If they send me a Ford Fiesta, the little compact car, I probably get hit, but maybe not so severely. And I might not get the message. In so many ways, they send me the perfect size vehicle to get badly hurt, badly hurt enough that I had more time to pause on like how I wanted to live, how I wanted to show up. Did I want to wake up to life or not? Cause I was doing what a lot of people currently do today. You want the pleasant and you push or numb away the unpleasant, the unwanted. And so the pleasant is good, right? The dopamine hits. So we strive after that, strive after that, more stuff and more stuff and more stuff and more of those more likes, if you will, in social media and everything that's unwanted or not pleasant, we push away, we push away or we numb it away. And I was doing exactly that. And what I've learned along the way in terms of my mindfulness journey is to be receptive and open to all of it. You know, as Rumi writes, you know, this is a guest house, this thing called life. Welcome all visitors. Welcome them at the door laughing, entertain them all. And that's what I've been able to do to have space for all that comes up. 
Because I know all that comes up, there's an impermanence to all of it. It floats away. And there's another moment. Um, but we don't necessarily see life because we're spinning too hard on our hamster wheel. The, the, the impermanence, I think in particular, is, is something that uh, is an integral part of the game. You know, like if, if we're being honest, you know, things come and things go. And as much as I want to label, <laughs> the labeling, that's not in alignment with nature. No. Yeah. It's fall foliage, the cherry blossoms. I used to live in D.C., so everyone flocked to the cherry blossoms to get them at full peak. They're beautiful and the fall foliage is beautiful because it doesn't last forever. If it lasted, if full foliage and full peak for the cherry blossoms was in constant, we would take it for granted. We, but we see the beauty in the moment because we know it won't last forever. And so that moment won't and this moment won't. And so how can we appreciate our moments and know that, you know, this moment will pass to another, you know, this moment too shall pass, as I said. So um, getting into that way of being has helped me tremendously as far as like the rest of my journey, right? Since, cause I had too many surgeries to count, although my insurance company has done a pretty good job counting, uh, but I've <laughs> lost count. And a ton of hours in rehab and, you know, it's, I've gone through pleasant moments and unwanted moments and every moment in between. I think it's really the unwanted moments though, that maybe we have the most room to grow, I think, and deserve, you know, attention. It's easier to deal with the good moments. I, I know what to do with, well, maybe the, there's probably some room there too, but it's especially the, the unwanted moments. Like they're, they're called unwanted or painful for, for a reason. Right. Um, and then, so the, the, the process, the cultivation of, of shifting them towards something that isn't as painful, right? Like that's, that's the idea. And, and that's what I hear you talking about doing. And, you know, for those who don't know, you know, Michael has this thing about how that, what he described when he got hit was your last bad day. Right. Which is, I think what this is all about, like in order for that to be your last bad day, you have had to develop a relationship with those unwanted, painful moments where you don't allow them to grab hold of you, maybe in the way that they used to. So can you describe a little bit like how you've been able to do that? I think that's something that many people would be be interested in. Those those moments come, they happen What's your process for moving through those moments? So, yeah, great point, Avi. I think it starts like upstream is coming to the realization that a lot of my really tough moments eventually led to some of my most profound growth. So when I saw them through that lens, I'm like, okay, well, there's some benefit here. I have to go through the mud, right, to become the lotus, now, not every bad moment, some moments are just filled with sorrow and sadness, and it doesn't feel like there's any growth to that. But what 
I've been able to do, and this is how I, you know, I feel the sadness and, and I feel the sorrow. So having my last bad day doesn't mean I don't feel a whole range of different emotions. I like to think since my accident, my emotional agility and my emotional acumen has widened that aperture. Like I, I'm just more aware of a whole bunch of different emotions that we can all feel. So I feel them, but, and it's maybe not so like literal, like, you know, um, as far as like sadness can last more than a day. Um, so right now, as we sit down and record, we have the war in Ukraine. And for me, I feel there's a part of me that feels sad and it's felt sad now for two weeks, but there's also elements of my being that feel grateful and happy. And, and so all of it exists together. So what I decided to do with my last bad day is like really get wise about my labels. So if I have some sad moments or angry moments or disappointing moments throughout the day, but I go to bed each night and I have people who care about me in my life. I have my wife, I have my daughters, I have friends then how can I say that whole day is a bad one? So I'm going to get really wise about how I label my days. My day was a day. Um, wasn't necessarily good or bad. Um, it was a whole bunch of a whole bunch, right? Uh, I often talk about with managers. I'm like, how do you know a difference between a manager and a leader? A manager, if you ask a manager how her day was, she'll say, fine, a leader will be like, oh, we have to talk because it's going to be so much, right? You're going to experience so much as a leader. A manager just will say, it's, it was fine. You just sort of go through the motion. And so when you wake up to life, you've experienced a whole bunch. And But I, I decided that I was going to change my relationship with the unwanted. And in some ways, even through my athletics, now that I'm back riding my bike, some of the unwanted, some of the suffering, the pain cave, as they call it in athletics, like I want to get there because I know that is a, a moment that's not going to last forever, but will generally lead to a lot of my growth and my strength and my stamina and all that stuff like that. So I just have been working on, it's been 20 years, almost 21 years now, working on changing my relationship with unwanted. And if I can't really embrace it, I can at least allow it to sit along with what's pleasant. So instead of pushing it away, or I like to say putting it in my backpack, which I did before my accident, I'm just going to let it have some space and say, okay, you can sit here along with all these other beautiful emotions I'm feeling. And I know that this moment is temporary. You too shall pass. And I lose my grip on it. It, I don't, it doesn't get so grippy which then I think has a way of preventing it from turning from a bad moment into a bad day or even longer. Cause we, cause I'm not going to ruminate on it uh, as I think a lot of folks do today. Do you see this as, as like a game we're playing in life and there are certain like nature has the rules to it. And I'm trying to figure out what the rules to the game are in order to uh, play at a higher level. Yeah, I like I realize like the whole control piece, right? So back in the day, like if I can just control things, they almost you know bring an ego. Like I have the right answer. I'm the leader. Like I had a leadership position, so 
as a leader, this is this this was the, the the notion, the script I was following. Leaders know all the right answers. They know how to get to where we want to get to, right? That that was the script I followed. So, all right. So I know the rules. I know what's right. And then it got all flipped upside down. And I realized actually the value is in the unknowing. The value is in the curiosity. It, like you don't have all the answers. You're not in control. Like we're not, to your point, we're not steering the ship. Like, like the ship's being steered by something else. And we, uh, we're along for the ride. And the more awake you can be with life and the more agility and versatility you have, if you slow down enough, you can, okay, you can see things differently, right? They, they tell everyone in sports, like the game gets the, the people who are really excelling at their sport, the sport seems really slow. Like you ask any athlete who's in a slump, it's like, everything seems so fast. And then the people who are really doing well. Yeah. Everything's slowing down. That 95 mile per hour fastball seems like it's coming in at 55 miles an hour. And I would say the same thing's happening maybe on stage or in a lot of other aspects of life. Like when things slow down, we can just respond to the game better. When everything's going a thousand miles an hour, all we're doing is reacting and we don't necessarily play our best game. And so mindfulness, I think, can help us slow down and be fully awake um, and do the work. Work, I will add, that has no end, right? This this thing called like waking up and undoing and all like all that, like that doesn't end. We we can we have an invitation to do it up until the day we pass to wherever you believe we pass to. And that's, it's, it's, it's awe inspiring. Um, it can get a little intimidating too, but, it, um, but I sure believe it beats scrolling TikTok, right? So, <laughs> even though we're both on TikTok. So, um, but yeah, waking up to life is, is work, work with a purpose. I think, or it, it beats trying to, convince yourself that the game is different than it really is and the pain that that comes from from doing that it's like i think of the the voice inside of myself and maybe we all have this that um doesn't want to admit my lack of control right like that is like the scariest thing to like honestly believe like i am not in control of my life there's another voice that's like going hard. Like I am in control. I can, you know, mold nature to, uh, the way I want it to, to be. And then it's also scary because like, what's the point then? Like if I'm not playing kind of this ego game that right, where it's like, I'm racking up certain amount of points and I'm beating other human beings, like, and there's nothing to take credit for, like, then it's so scary because it's like, what do I do? Like, where do I go from, from there? Because I've been playing that other game for so long. I have no idea how to play this, this game where I'm not in control. Yeah. I love that. The gamification of life. And we see it like so many different apps gamify the app, you know, collect these points, do this streak, 
if, and, and I will say this, um, I participate in that, like I have streaks on certain apps and, but for, for what cause, like what, what, what are we doing here? And to your point, yeah, there is that person that wants to control it all, feels it needs to control it, believes they can control it all. And others feels like I, I'm not in control of anything. Everyone else is out to get me. And then you, you can wake up and you realize, Oh no, I, um, like I get to control how I respond to this game, how I wish to show up. Well, how do I, what do I wish to ripple? And yeah, it, it conflicts with the script that many of us has, have been given since like we started wake, like teenager, maybe younger. And like, this is the way, this is the way we play it. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a potential new way. And that's scary. You know, one of my meditation teachers have, has often says, uh, Saki Santorelli, because like this thing called mindfulness will undo you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm like, hey, Saki, that's not, maybe not the best way to market mindfulness because that's saying. <laughs> you know, but it will, it will undo you. You have to unlearn. You know, I think that's something that I've spent a lot of focus on over the last five years, in particular the last two years, is unlearning some of the things I have been taught. And that's can be scary, but hopefully we have enough courage, enough curiosity, and hopefully enough commitment to throw another C word in there to lean into that or just explore that, discover that what it what it means to unlearn and and yeah, you sort of undo your old script and you have a chance to write a new one. Um, and really, again, as I've mentioned before, wake up to this journey called life. Yeah. And I'll say too, to just like, I think add to the, (laughs) the positive elements of the, the undoing that, um, you know, for myself, and I think many of us who are, are practicing meditation and, and, and undoing this love that begins to develop for the, the, the silence for the place, uh, beyond the mind, you know, and as you start to practice, you know, the, those spaces in between thoughts start to elongate and you crave them. Like I, I crave them so much and they're, they're, they're such a gift. So, um, although it may seem like there's not benefits to doing this practice, right. It seems like so hard in the beginning and I'm not very good at it. There is so much, uh, there's so much juice there, you know, waiting for us. There, there's so much, like everything that we're even looking for actually, which is so beautiful because it's like, you know, what I'm actually looking for is there sitting there in the silence in the last place that I would ever look to find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the, the moments in between all the moments and yeah, it's really cool. Like when you get together with a, a bunch of folks who practice mindfulness, you can sit in silence and it doesn't feel awkward. And that doesn't mean that you can't go back and forth with energy, much like we're doing today, but it's just, we can be as comfortable doing that as we are sitting in silence with each other. And like, yeah, some of the greatest answers come 
like through a, through a, like a silent retreat. So I, you know, like doing a silent retreat every now and again, every year, you know, it's, you retreat to then eventually return, right? You, you gain some wisdom through the silence and a lot of ways, like you also give your brain a chance to change, you know, the neuroplasticity of the brain. You know, we're, we've developed a lot of habits over the last two years. Some of them I think are quite healthy and others may not be. So spending some time in silence, not doing, just being, I think can do a lot of wonder just for our overall health, but just overall sense of like who we wish to be as the urge to create the new normal, you know, seems to be knocking on our door as we might be making a transition here in the great kerfuffle, as I like to call it. But having these moments of silence, I think can be really just thought provoking. And a lot of answers are within that. If we're willing to be, willing to be in those moments. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, something that is coming to me more, I think is, is realizing that the relationship that maybe human beings have had with words, right? Like that is something I didn't even consider like my own relationship with words for a long time. Words were everything. It wasn't, these, you know, sounds that were made up by another human to try to point to something, but it's not that actual thing that it, that it's pointing to. And I'm starting to to see now, and I think I'm having more, more compassion too, for the situation that I think words are an addiction, you know, words and constant stimulation. Um, and, uh, so therefore it's like, the balance. That's what I'm really interested in. That it's not that like words are bad or anything. Words are beautiful and I love words, but I'm seeking that balance that feels healthy between the silence and the words. Yeah, I love that. That's yeah, I think there's just a you know, there's there's a lot of noise. You know, they they say that we're in this attention economy. Everyone with a phone has a voice now, which is really cool. There's a really cool aspect of that because in the past, the system was built by like white guys. And like, if you, if you looked and sounded like us and agreed with us, you have a platform, right? We get to decide who has a voice now with a phone, everyone has a voice and there's something really cool about that, but it, it also can get really loud and addicting because we're all like, grabbing after the dopamine hit, you know, where it's striving for the pleasant and maybe even some of the silence is unwanted, <laughs> you know, if we have a strong addiction to the, the words and the noise, but being wise with our words, you know, as they say, words matter, right? So being smart about how we describe things, how do we talk to ourselves? How do we talk with each other? And then also just, giving ourselves permission to be in the silence. And that's why I start with like a five minute sit. You know, someone would be like, ah, you got to sit longer, right? From a mindfulness-based stress reduction, like philosophy, a proper sit is 45 minutes. Uh, Although we'll be quick to say, if you don't have 45, 44 will do just fine. 
<laughs> if you don't have 44, 43 will work. But for me, just five for the non-meditator who's like, I can't do this. It's an invite to say, I bet you could do five minutes. We'll start there and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah, I was having a conversation uh, just last night with my brother and he's in a very interesting position. You know, he has a big company and he's also, you know, um, started to cultivate a mindfulness practice at the same time. And uh, I was asking him just about his practice and, you know, he said that he's really let it go recently and he hasn't been practicing at all. And so we got into talking about this thing about, you know, like the amount of time and even turning meditation into a, a type of uh, competition type of thing that he, he saw, well, if I'm not going to sit for 20 minutes, kind of like, what's, what's the point, you know? And I think you and I share this a lot where it's like, I mean, I even think like a few seconds, I, I, I kind of don't, I don't really believe in the whole, like you need to do it for a certain period of time. That's not what my experience tells me. I could even take a minute and I'm not trying to equate that to 30 minutes. That's a different thing. All I'm trying to say is that there's great benefit in the minute. And if there's great benefit in the minute, why not have that benefit? I completely agree. I think there's benefit in just even 30 seconds of like doing nothing and breathing. I think in some school schools or philosophies, there's research that suggests, well, it's 20 minutes, but they haven't studied five minutes or they haven't even studied one. So they can't say that five and one have benefit because they've only studied sits of 20 minutes. So they sort of get caught into that and say, okay, well, this is the standard. And my thinking with, you know, I think your brother's example is a really good one, Avi, is in this busy, active way of living where technology is rapidly uh, accelerating our pace anytime at all where we can just sit and be still and come back to our breath and recruit a different part of our nervous system, there's benefit to that. And if we have to do that a hundred times during the course of the day, if we don't have a hundred minutes to sit in one sitting, but we have, you know, one minute, a hundred times, then I'll, I'll take whatever I can get because I know the way we're currently living, going, 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 and then seeing the stress, the burnout, the overwhelm, the reactivity, the different emotions that are popping up. I know this path only gets more intense if we don't change course. So how do we change course? Well, let's try to have the smallest step possible. And that, that was, in a lot of ways, a secret to my recovery, as they would bend me and measure me and all that stuff like that. I was just going after one degree of movement better each day. And I knew if I could string a whole bunch of those days together, then I would make some progress. So this whole idea of the smallest amount, the smallest step we can possibly take I see great value in that and that can help us build some momentum. So if it starts with just one minute, great. If it's five that you have perfect, if you have longer, fantastic, but let's start somewhere because the path we're on, I don't think is leading us to a place where we want to go. Yeah. You know, I consider how to, 
how to, how to do this kind of like how to be gentle with ourselves, like how to best accomplish that. And one practice that, that I use is to try to zoom out and to see myself in the third person. Right. Um, I'm curious if you've done this at all, or you see it, because when I do that, it becomes a lot easier. Cause then I'm not like, I'm not in Avi, I'm looking at Avi and I can see his tendencies, the way that he operates. And I could see that if I try to make too drastic of a change right away, it's not going to work. It's going to overwhelm him. But if I say to him, like, just try to do a little better, like what you're saying, just the one degree shift, I can do that. That, that not only feels easy, it's like, that's what I want in my life to try to just progress in a very gentle, calming way. I don't need to jump into the deep end right when I'm learning how to swim. Yeah, I love that. And I've definitely used that too. Like the distancing myself from myself and you'll hear entertainers or a lot of athletes will talk about themselves and in a post-game interview. And you're like, who are they talking about? You know, (laughs) for any Seinfeld's, fans out there is like there's an episode where George says George likes his chicken spicy right so it's like what is he why is he talking that way and but I think there's and I think some of the research does suggest that can be quite helpful for some people you know you step out you almost become a coach of yourself and how would you coach yourself in this moment you know what advice what counsel what kind of nurturing would you give yourself and maybe the nurturing that we have to give ourselves is you have permission to take this minute. You have permission to take five minutes. You have permission to slow down, um, you know, and be fully awake in this moment because this moment matters, right? This moment will ripple or cascade into all future moments. So let's be wise about how we wish to use this moment. Yeah, I just want to say, like, I'm kind of laughing inside because I'm I'm recalling a memory from when I was a kid uh, and I was into baseball a lot. And I remember Ricky Henderson would always talk about himself in the third person. Ricky's doing this and Ricky's doing that. And, you know, I just saw it as like, okay, whatever. But the, um, the perspective that other people seem to have around it was that he was crazy, you know, and there was something wrong with doing that. And so I left it. I, I, I put it away because I didn't want to be, you know, labeled like that. And it's like, I've come back to it a little bit as I've gained more confidence and say, well, I think that there's actually really something, something there. And he was what, like, I think the all-time, uh, all-time King leading sport. stolen base. Yeah. Like I, I remember seeing him in Fenway park once it was like incredible. He, you know, he, he changed the game in a lot of ways, like uh, some of my uh, friends from my corporate days, when I got hit, you know, just cause it was in a corporate environment, a corporate meeting, they would often comment to me that it's like, it's almost like you're talking about your accident as it happened to someone else. And I said, well, you know what? In a lot of ways, that was a coping mechanism that I had to distance myself from it because if I was in it the whole time, experiencing the trauma, it could be too overwhelming. So I had to find a way to talk about what was happening with some distance uh, so I could help myself navigate what was a lot of uncertainty. And uh, so I said, that's just a way that I dealt with it. Now I didn't 
talk about myself in third person, like Michael's guy do this. Like I didn't pull the Ricky Henderson thing, but they would often comment say, yeah, it's almost like it happened to someone else. And I'm like, well, in so many ways it did because I'm a new person because of all this, like what happened, like blew apart my old identity. And in the beginning, I struggled with finding what my new identity was. And I think that's what's happening. I think with the planet, maybe this country is that the old way, I think many people were like, well, that wasn't working well enough. Certainly not for all of us, for some of us, the few who built the system for the few. What we struggle with, I think in this moment in 2022 is, okay, well, the old way, the old identity wasn't working. What's our new one? And you have forces at B that want to cling to the old way because they were benefiting from the old way. And we haven't yet still figured out what is our new way. And you see the tension, you see the wonkiness, you see the messiness. And we, we have to figure it out. It's the muddy part of our growth that we have to get through. And I think this year, we're, and it may be even longer than just this year, but I think this year, we're going to have to go through this. You know, just take the topic of what does return to work look like for most of the world, most of the U.S. That is going to be um, messy. And if we can say we're OK with it being messy, then we can change our relationship with it because it certainly won't be certain and it won't be exact because we don't have a playbook for this. We're doing this for the very first time. Yeah. And I'd maybe say it's going to be messy no matter what. Like it's messy even when you try to hold on to the past because you can't like that. Again, that's working, you know, against nature. And, um, you know, I, I think also like the, there's even maybe something a little bit deeper in terms of, of, of wanting to maintain the old system that goes, goes on. I think that I notice like a tendency to romanticize the past just in humans, especially like with childhood. Oh, when I was a kid, things were so much better. And you know, this, and it's like, I, I, I yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, but I, <laughs> the, that to me is like a holdup. That's an obstacle to the progression because again, it's not working with, with reality. Like you can't go back, you know, you can look at the past and say, okay, let's dissect this a little bit. Like what elements used to be common in the past that have gone that felt healthy to me that I want to incorporate into the future. Yes. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's do that. But I think that there, there's really a lot of fear at work there. There's fear into the future you know, and there's like a safety, a, more of a comfort of, of staying where things were, because um, I know, I know what that's like. And we see that all the time in terms of different relate people stay in really hard, hard positions in their lives, because I'll take the known, the painful known to the, uh, you know, the uh, unknown that's, uh, you know, that could be much better. Yeah. yeah, no, I think we do that all the time. We do romance the past. But I don't think anyone's looking back to me. Oh, yeah, I want to go back to the days of the little house on the prairie, you know, when we we're, you know, working the fields and there's no air conditioning and like, you know, the whole, they, you know, we just, it's part of our biology, right? So we're hardwired to pay attention to threats in the moment. If there's no threat, just, and then we, 
we take some of the goodness, we we create a story around the goodness that may or may not from the past that may or may not be accurate, but it's the way we saw it, our perspective. And yeah, it gets scary, the future. And I think the last two years, I think it's really underscored this, like how uncertain life is. Life is uncertain. It's, it's always been. And I think we've felt it more over the last two years. And I think that's the scary part. It's like, oh, wow, it's uncertain. It's blank in some ways. And oh, you know what? It's up to you to like create your art on that canvas. Now you can... You can allow someone else to do it for you, but then you're just going to play the same game you've always played. So the scary thing is like, oh, no, I'm going to pick up the brush or the marker or the pencil and I'm going to create. And you see some people doing that current day and then other people are like, oh, wow, it's really scary. There's a lot of responsibility there. And and I think um, that's going to be the messy part of the year is like um, how many take this invitation on and choose to live differently and change, change the narrative and hopefully create a system that works for all of us, not just some of us. So I want to ask you about this um, in terms of changing the narrative, the message that has been coming to me a lot is like, okay, take up the brush and, what are you going to paint? Right. And I think my external world right away, like, okay, our society and how can we, you know, structure laws and government differently and all that sort of thing. But in a way that's feeling like another trap for me personally, I would say, and what the, what, what, what nature keeps on telling me is go inside, keep going inside and keep focusing on, on what you're painting in there and keep, keep painting something more beautiful on the inside. And as a byproduct, if I do that, like I'm naturally painting something outside just by living my life, that's just going to happen. And, and this might sound like an excuse, but I don't feel that it is. Um, and because like as an example, if I keep doing the work on the inside, right? And I get to a place of, in a way, losing myself and getting to a place of, of freedom and peace that maybe even I, I, I feel gratitude so deeply that my life can end right now. And I'm okay with that, right? Now, that work that I just did inside getting to that place, connecting with that place is going to dramatically impact the action that I take externally. Because I don't think that there is anything more powerful than a human being that genuinely feels that they have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And what we have is a lot of people operating that they are so afraid to lose, you know, anything. Like, I, I think it's very uncommon to meet a person that says like, okay, my life can end right now and I'm okay with it because I've already, I'm already full. I've already been given all of these experiences in life. I want more, like that would be great if I have more, but even if I don't get more, that's that's okay with me. So what do you think about that? <laughs> I think it's, well, there's, so much, there's so much goodness to unpack. And back before my accident, I was terrified of dying. And now, you know, I, you know, I certainly, I want to continue living. But I'm not 
terrified of dying like I once was, right? So I I know that hey, we're all we're all energy in a vessel of flesh and bones, and, you know, cells that you know our energy travels wherever it travels next. And I think like we're hearing you, Abby, like one of the old adages that is quite common is like nothing, nothing changes until you do, right? Or be the change you wish to see in the world, which often is attributed to Gandhi. But I think there's some question as to whether or not he actually said that or not, but it doesn't matter, right? So the principle is like all change starts with ourselves. Like it's an inside out kind of thing. And I totally buy into that. I, I will also say. I think some of the external work that we do is also important. So we're recording this on, on National Pi Day, uh, March 14th, right? Uh, the number pi, 3.14. Uh, but there, you know, obviously you can pull the thread to like fruit pies and stuff like that. And there's a lot of debate. And I shared this this morning with some, like what makes a good pie? And some would say it's the crust and others will say, no, it's the filling. And I would say it's both because if you put like McDonald's filling into a good crust, it's still not a good pie. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you, you need both. There's a Rumi uh, poem about two kinds of intelligence and it's the intelligence that we acquire and and the intelligence that comes from within. So I think we probably all have an invitation to do both to the degree that we can working on our, our inner game, the change that we wish to see in ourselves, that work and doing the work that's external, that can touch other people that can also bring about the change we wish to see in the world. I think, and you're doing it like you're, I think you're doing both at the same time. It's a beautiful slice of pie, right? You're doing the work and sharing your message. Just to, even this podcast is an example of putting your own work out there. Your own message is your own energy as you are in parallel doing the work that is needed within you. So I think this moment calls for us to do both. And I hope more people take that invitation to get to critical mass. I am optimistic and I'm hopeful and I'm faithful about our future. I think this moment although it is, has extended far longer than I ever could have imagined, is all happening for us. It's the mud the last two years. And it's the valley, right? It's, all, it's the darkness, like all that. Uh, those, are the, those are the moments that lead to some of our, our most profound growth. You know, I talk a lot in corporate America and on LinkedIn, the soulless social media platform. And resumes where everything is just like you have you have this and then you get to the next level, it's higher, you get to the next level, it's higher. Like there's this like linear type of progression from the lower left to the upper right. It looks like success is like that smooth lineup. But that's not life. We hide all of our valleys. Hmm. But we know, I think, intellectually within us this kind of intelligence that the valley part, the, the wonkiness, this, there's a, there's a, also an illustration uh, like, you know, of entrepreneurship or whatever it could be. And it's a squiggly line. It's all swirly. It's up and down. And so success is not linear. Right. And I think 
the more we can embrace our valleys, the dark moments, the muddy stuff that we're living in current day, we can see it differently. We can live with it differently. It's this bad moment that doesn't have to turn into a bad day where we get more divisive or divisive. Uh, we can use it to find a way to rise and begin to hear and see and love each other more. Cause I think that's one of the things that the planet desperately needs. Hmm. Yeah. I think maybe even in the future, our relationship with the values is going to be very, very different where we acknowledge that those are really the, uh, the gems that we can offer other people. And we seek to identify our values as an offering to other people so that we feel more connected and less alone and to give each other strength as opposed to trying to, you know, portray ourselves, like you said, and just, you know, only successes, the, yeah, the, yeah. the straight line. The highlight um, reel of yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's been, that's, what's tricky about social media. And I'd like to ask you about that, but uh, I really want to talk um, before we end about your, your trip across country and your plans and, and why you're doing it and um, how you're feeling about it. Yeah. I'm feeling stoked. So to fill the listeners in, so I'm riding my bike across the country we leave uh, June 14th from Astoria, Oregon. We arrive in Yorktown, Virginia on July 31st, so 45 days. The we is my wife and our two dogs, Jester with a J, J-E-S-T-E-R and Hope. So they're coming along. This has been a bucket list thing for both of us. My bucket list was to ride across the country uh, my wife has a desire to RV across the country. So she's driving the RV and I'm riding. And I was going to do it last year to celebrate 20 years since my last bad day, sort of an anniversary type of thing. But last year, we still were in the throes of the pandemic and my left knee, which they had predicted was going to get replaced five years after the accident. So that would have been 2006. But I was able to get 20 years out of it through a lot of the living I've been doing, the mindfulness living and everything associated with that. But the knee was starting to give out and it was time for it to get replaced. So instead of doing my cross country ride last year in 2021, I got my knee replaced. And so now I get to do it with a total knee replacement and celebrate 21 years. And so really it's a it's a big gratitude ripple. I'm calling it rise to ripple. So the rise is obviously speaks to resilience. The two is, it's about a bridge to somewhere like from the old to the new. And the ripple is all about our energy. Cause when I was a young kid, I used to love to skip stones in the pond and back in my grandma's house and, and Grammy in the mountains, we used to call her. She had a house up in New Hampshire that would, uh, butt up against blueberry field. So she had this big pond and I used to go there and skip stones and those ripples, right. The, it, which is just energy, right? So rise resilience to something new, um, energy. And so that's what, you know, that's the sort of that notion of the ride. And it really is a, a testament on what can be possible with gratitude, mindfulness and community. It's also a big thank you to everyone who has shaped me into the person I am today. Obviously, I did a little shaping myself, right? I was working on myself, but I didn't do it alone. And so 
this is a thank you, right? So the EMTs that saved my life that morning on July 11, 2001, they got called to come to an accident scene. They really didn't know what to expect. They didn't know who I was. They didn't care who I voted for, who I prayed to, who I loved, my background. They didn't care. They didn't check any of that out. They didn't ask me those questions. Well, you know, do you agree with how I see the world? They didn't, they didn't ask me that. They just worked on saving my life. They got to work. And then the helicopter crew came and they didn't ask me any of those questions either. They just transported me to the hospital as fast as possible. And my whole trauma team at the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque, when I wheeled, was wheeled into the trauma center, they didn't ask me any of those questions either. They just got to work to save my life. And they showed up in such a way, like everything in a lot of ways went perfectly that day to save my life and then to save my leg. And every day I wake up, I try to honor their work. Yeah. And so it's a thank you um, to, to them, but everyone along the way in the 20 plus years who have ha has had a impact in my life to shape me into who I am it, because they rippled into me. And in a lot of ways, it's like, Hey, you know what? My life 20 years ago was a life worth saving because I'm doing something with it. Um, I'm continuing your ripple and we're slowly, but surely changing the world. And that's what the ride's a lot about. So, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's that human experience. Uh, and I, what I want to do is share the country with people, even, even if our union is not perfect, right. It's, it's about like creating a more perfect union. It's not perfect. It has blemishes. We're like Kintsugi art. We have flaws. Um, but I, I do want to share the country with people who follow and help people realize as I ride through probably uh, more red states and blue states that we generally all want the same thing. We might go about it a little bit differently, but 97% of us want some goodness um, that we have a lot more in common that what then divides us. And I want to, I want to show that too. So, uh, and, and inspire people. I think it would be worth watching. Certainly. I'm not sure if getting uh, hip deep in the political mumbo jumbo that will be happening during the ride, because it happens in June and July. So all the midterm election stuff will be gearing up and media will try to divide us once again. My hope is that my ride for those that watch and follow, it'll be a source of inspiration that look what can happen if we approach life with gratitude, mindfulness, community, and see the goodness in each other um, and see if we can figure out a way to come together. So is there a way for people to best kind of uh, track what you're doing and you're going to be recording yourself um, during different parts of the trip. Yeah. How can people tune in? Yeah. So one of the best ways um, I'm going to send out a daily text, just documenting the trip. 
Um, so if people want to participate in that, they can send a text to 503-487-5957 and I'll send them a photo where we are and maybe a video. I will also be doing daily um, lives, probably on Instagram or Facebook uh, so they can follow me there. Just showcase, showcasing where I'm going in the day. HSS, the Hospital for Special Surgery, is a nonprofit hospital. That's where I've had most of my surgeries. They're a charity partner, but I also plan to speak to a charity a day every day for 45 days, um, just as a way for people to understand great causes that are happening around us, the, the generous nature of people. Uh, so I plan to do a little live each morning where you know we lead a meditation, we talk about the day ahead, we showcase a, a charity and then we have a little dance party before I clip into the pedals. And <laughs> so if people want to follow via text or via social, that's the best way. And I'll have my webpage up here in a couple of weeks. And, and we're just trying to put like some goodness. Uh, it's, it's an ambitious plan because uh, I have to ride about hundred miles a day for 43 out of the 45 days. So my cycling friends, when I tell them, they're like, whoa, ooh. you know, so it's a reaction that suggests that's crazy, but it's not like totally crazy, but it's crazy. Um, and so, yeah, it's a little crazy, but I, but I like crazy. I like, <laughs> I, I like crazy. I think, um, I feel confident in my ability to do it. My knee post-surgery is going really well. And you know, it's uh, pedal stroke by pedal stroke, breath, breath, breath by breath, day by day. And, you know, we'll find a way uh, through the country and really experience something. Hopefully my wife and I will have our time together with our dogs, but also just share it with uh, as many people who wish to watch and just, you know, realize that we can do hard things and we can do hard things together. And I, I feel like we're in a hard moment and we can get through this hard moment together. And the ride sort of signifies and symbolizes that. As you're speaking, I like got a little like glimpse, I think, into the uh, just like the feel, a little bit of the feel of the trip for you, like to be on your bike, like something so, so simple. I know there's a part of me that, that yearns for like the simplicity, like in a day of just, okay, go from point A to point B. Uh, and just to be, to be in it. So, uh, I, I want to wish you the, the best of experiences and thank you for, for being you. You're totally inspiring to me and I know to so many other people. So I love you, Michael. Thank you for taking the time to doing that, for doing this, um, complete pleasure. And you're a total mensch. Uh, thanks, Avi. Well, it takes a mensch to know a mensch. Love you too, brother. And love what you're doing. I'm glad, um, I'm glad the pandemic found a way to bring us together, you know, via clubhouse and here. And um, yeah, I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate your part of this journey that I'm on and I'm part of the journey that you're on. So uh, love you. Uh, and uh, I will put all of the information in the show notes. So feel free to check it out. Keep tabs on Michael and uh, he, he's an amazing support wherever you are in your journey. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.